0: We hope this explanation of God's word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the Lunchtime Campus Bible Study where it was delivered for university students. I'll read Mark
1: chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. And when the sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week they went to the tomb when the sun had risen and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? And looking up they saw that the stone was rolled back, it was very large, and entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this statement that we read of the resurrection of Christ. We thank you that Jesus is indeed alive and that he was not held down by death. And We thank you, Father, that we can look forward to the hope of the resurrection which is to come. We pray for Philip as he speaks to us that he will speak only the truth and that you'll help us to understand it and to be obedient to it as it applies to us. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: A man the other day who had just read Genesis uh, 3 about the uh, Eve taking the fruit, and uh, he said that she was a typical ABC uh, uh, listener because uh, Eve, if you remember, when she takes the fruit, sees that it's uh, good for food, and it's a delight to the eyes, and it's uh, useful for making one wise. And he pointed out that. Uh, most ABC people are health fanatics who have got some uh, desires to be uh, as- aesthetic in their values and tastes and listen to the ABC in order to make themselves wise. And so he took it to the original sin, lay in that, and I am suffering from the first part of it because I decided to walk to uni and I'm uh, still panting and the muscles in my leg are still twitching because I can't make it that quickly and I forgot today is the top... Top campus, and just when I arrived, I then remembered Vassa Steps. <laughs> and I realised the Sineviv has come home to me. Peter has passed over these yellow cards for me, so I presume you want me to remind them about this at the end, not at the beginning. Well, I won't do it now then. Having <laughs> just done it. When you uh, looked last week at uh, the death of Jesus, I raised the whole question of death and its meaning and its purpose and why people die and suggested the Bible's view is it got to do with sin. And it's a universal experience, like sin is a universal experience, that it's the punishment of God. Secondly, that Jesus, though sinless, died both in conquest and in sacrifice. He died as the Messiah, as the conquering King of God over Israel. He died (coughs) as a sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. And that I foreshadowed that chapter 16 points out that his death was successful at both levels. Successful in the conquest that death could not hold him. Successful in that he was a sacrifice acceptable to God for God raised him. We come then to this chapter 16 of Mark's gospel and immediately confronted with a problem of four different endings. Of which your RSV text in front of you, if you have an RSV, gives you three endings. It may end at verse 8 you may have the addition of what's known as the shorter ending which consists of two verses or you may have the longer ending which consists of verses 9 to 20 or you may have another alternative that is the shorter ending plus the longer ending and it depends which manuscript you're reading as to where you think this gospel ends so the first thing we need to uh, clarify is where it ends and which part of the text we'll take as the text Now, don't be afraid about that it's actually a good exercise and a very valuable thing for Christianity that the gospel is in such a fuzzy state textually it's important and valuable it's important for this reason we are dealing with historical documents documents that uh, grew out of obscurity they weren't written by famous and important men and they weren't immediately published all over the world with, its, with their ISBN number stuck at the end of them either. I understand my latest little publication called Two Ways to Live has now got an ISBN number. The number's longer than the publication. However, everything published in Australia so you has got these numbers all classified dutifully and all stored away in a retrieval system. Well, that was not the way in which these documents arose. And it is one of the interesting testimonies to their veracity that they reflect the rough edges of history rather than the concerted effort of of fiction writers to make everything neat and tidy we're to be expect to have rough edges and there are rough edges and there's quite a few of them and we're to expect to approach them in the same way in which we approach historical documents of any kind to try and find out which manuscript most clearly represents the author's mind Now we are in a particularly embarrassing situation, you see, if you're going to do a study of Caesar's Gallic Wars well you've only got a handful of manuscripts. I've forgotten the exact figure, but you can get it out of F.F. Bruce's book uh, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? which is not on sale over there now, but will be on another occasion. Uh, There's about 13 or so manuscripts before the first thousand years after Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars. In that same period there are 7,000 New Testament copies that gives us a major problem of sorting and shifting, because we have got more opportunity for diversity than you ever got of Caesar's Gallic Wars. But also means you've got greater wealth of testimony too. Now, which of these endings do we go for? Well, ignore the comments of the RSV writers. They're very naughty, really. They say things like, other ancient manuscripts add, blong, 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 or other ancient manuscripts omit, blong, blong, blong. I mean, that is the value judgment of the editor, isn't it? What they really mean to say is you can find in some manuscript these verses. Whether they've been added or whether they've been omitted is the very question you're trying to ask. That's that's the point of issue. Well, which ones do we go for and why? The majority of texts contain verses 9 to 20. (coughs) That is the majority of them. Some manuscripts... And quite a few translations just have the shorter ending of verses 9 and 10, I think it is. The URSB does contain that, doesn't it? Just the short ending? Yes? No? Yeah, right, that little ending there. Is it two verses? 9 and 10, as they call it? 9 to 11, is it? All right, Now that little shorter ending does occur in quite a few manuscripts and quite a few early translations. Then some of the later manuscripts put those two together. So you go verses 9 to 11, and then verses 9 to 20 all added on together. So it actually goes from 12 through to 24 or so. And some actually put the little ending 9 to 11 after verses nineteen to 20. So you can actually go fifth alternative there if you want it. But four or five manuscripts, and two of the very most important and valuable manuscripts we own, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, do not have anything past verse 8. Now there are only four of those manuscripts, but they are very ancient. They are highly respected in their, in their care with which they were copied in the first place. And we find in many translations and in many early Christian fathers in their quoting of, the, of Mark's gospel, they are in agreement with those two manuscripts, those four manuscripts. Furthermore, you've got some early fathers whose names I won't bore you with, but you can check later if you want them, who actually say that Mark's Gospel did end at verse 8, and that the others were editions. So they knew right back in the 3rd century of the problem of the ending of Mark's Gospel, and they had come to their conclusion on the basis of the manuscripts they had in front of them. And so we have a wide diversity of opinion and a very ancient uh, ascription to only verses 1 to 8. Well then, what are the probabilities? The probabilities lie very heavily with the short ending. I think, uh, personally, overwhelmingly with a short ending. The external uh, evidences and arguments about uh, the manuscripts are such that you would expect the short ending to be the right one because there is a tendency in textual uh, critics to accept shorter endings rather than longer ones as there's a tendency in scribes to add rather than to subtract. more normal feature of us. Secondly, that the oldest and most widespread uh, viewpoint is that of the shorter ending, while the majority of texts, which of course copy each other, might show the longer ending. But the internal evidences are even more important. The style of... uh, oh sorry there's a third external evidence, that is that you've got not just one alternative but several alternatives. That tells against their, uh, their authenticity. It's more likely people are trying to round off and complete what is taking place. And when you get several different alternative ways of ending, or putting a manuscript together, then you need to be more suspicious of the additions rather than subtractions. But the internal evidence seems to weigh heavily to my mind. The style of these uh, last 12 verses, or the shorter ending, is quite different to the style of writing of Mark's Gospel. There are 17 words in those last uh, in verses nine to twenty, which you do not find anywhere else in the whole of the 16 chapters of Mark. Right? New vocabulary enters in, new uh, new uh, grammatical styles. It's always as if he had a grammar lesson at the end of verse eight, because he develops all kinds of styles which he didn't have earlier, and which would have been a vast improvement on his writing if he did have them earlier. Mm-hmm. And some of his more crude forms. Uh, He writes throughout saying, and then, and then, and then. I looked at my Matthew's uh, essay the other day, he wrote at school in first class, and every sentence started, and then. Uh, Well, Mark writes like that, but suddenly in verses 9 to 20, he's learnt that you don't have to start a sentence, and then, because you don't find it anymore. So it looks as if it comes from another hand. You also find that verse 8 is a very funny place to finish. The women run away afraid. That's a very funny place to finish. And therefore, you can understand why someone would want to add on to it. It's hard-pressed to work out why someone would want to take away uh, from the completed, from 9 to 20. Why would anyone want to remove that and end the women ran away afraid? Furthermore, well, that'll do. It's only a small matter, really. I think the evidence is really, really led us to conclude that verse 8 is a place to finish. But then you have the problem, well, why did he finish at verse 8? He have got several possibilities there. Like, we lost the ending of it. And the scribes, you see, have added up what was lost. The last page is gone. It's an argument from silence, of course, because you haven't got the last page to prove that you've lost it. That's a bit of a problem. It's a hypothesis which is almost untestable. But there's a possibility. Or Mark was killed just as he reached verse (laughs) 8. So he never finished it. And so others stepped in to finish. Again, you don't have that. Or that he's supposed to finish it at verse 8. There's your other alternative. Well, if that is the case, why would he do that? Is there any explanation that he could actually want to finish at verse 8? And I'd say, yes, there is. It has to do with the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. And we'll point it to you later on as we go through this study. That throughout the Gospel of Mark, whenever Jesus is revealed to people as a Messiah, the response that they re- uh, record is amazement and shock and fear. And that, that is the response of a man coming face-to-face with God. Now, that is the place that that Mark wants to lead us to. And that is what he does. That the final, clearest revelation of Jesus as the Messiah he is, is his resurrection. And he he is actually writing to that point. Secondly, that once he has recorded the empty tomb with the resurrection statement of the young man sitting on the right side there, once he's recorded that, he has said all that he needs to say. Because, the third point, how much of the gospel is the gospel? I mean, he can go on like Luke and write volume 2 and tell you all about the Acts of the Apostles and what happened afterwards. He can do that. But does it add any more than you already need to be saved by? And I'd suggest you know. He may, of course, from chapter 1, verse 1, actually only be writing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, well, once Jesus has risen from the dead, then there's no longer the beginning. You're in the body of it then, uh, if you'll excuse the pun have to point him out it's bad news um, that Jesus is the risen Lord of heaven and earth is actually moved us well and truly beyond the beginning of the gospel and he's really recording for you the historical antecedents of Jesus' present position I suggest there's sufficient reason to say that there's no need to go beyond verse 8 and given the external and internal considerations of the, uh, of the, uh, of the textual uh, traditions verse 8 is where I'm stopping I'd also stop at verse 8 for another reason, that is my inbuilt Anglo-Saxon re- reserve, it seems to me most wise when verses of the Bible are in dispute that you do not base doctrine upon them, it seems to me wise, now it just might be you say Anglo-Saxon caution, but I am always uneasy about people who have got a verse which doesn't occur in some of the key manuscripts, and build great theories upon it. Very cautious of that. And so, if you've got something you want to prove to me from the Bible, and it only can be found in verses 9 to 20, it might be right, but I'll always have a question mark over it. If you can find it from somewhere else, well then find it from somewhere else anyway, eh? So there's a much wiser course of action. And so I leave verses 9 to 20 for your private reflection, and if you can find a commentator who comments on it, you'll be very lucky. Well then, let us turn to the important points that can see from these eight verses. It almost overwhelms me with joy to think that having given studies on 60 and 70 verses in a go, I only have eight to do. That's not a reason for accepting only the shorter ending. The women go to do what is always done by women, the dirty, menial, horrible jobs of life, like the embalming of the body. It's still that way. They come to the tomb and they're worried about who's going to move the stone. As you know the story well, they find the stone's moved back. They come inside and find a young man. He's not called an angel, but as angels are messengers, I'm sure he's an angel. Uh, That doesn't mean I think he's got wings, because angels don't necessarily have wings. Uh, there, any messenger is an angel if you're, if, you're an, if you're a messenger you're an angel you're going to get me a glass of cold water you're my angel um, funny way of talking about it I would think and you'd be worried about it but nonetheless that's all the word means and here's a man who's an angel dressed in white which I presume is to reflect back to you the idea of a heavenly messenger like you see the uh, Jesus dressed in white in his transfiguration like you tend to see heavenly messengers dressed in that kind of, uh, of colour or colourlessness No, colour. Colourfulness, isn't it? Now, what they find is the tomb being empty. And that says to you something of the nature of the resurrection and the history of the resurrection. What is a resurrection? It's when the body goes. That is the resurrection. You're not told how the body went. Although early manuscripts do give you accounts of it. And again, rejoice. You see, you and I only know our Bibles. I hope we know those, but that's all we know. And we don't realise that there are hundreds of other manuscripts that have been rejected as spurious. And you'll find in 2nd and 3rd century manuscripts great detailed descriptions of how the angels moved the stones and who did it and which what was said on the way out. and All kinds of fascinating information is recorded in 2nd and 3rd century manuscripts of which the New Testament manuscripts we have are so dark in their simplicity and so persuasive in their authenticity by it that we haven't got the colourings in of uh, imaginative men. We've just got an account of what they saw on that occasion, hardly coloured at all. Indeed, I'd suggest not coloured. For the women come and they sign the tomb empty. Now, the empty tomb is what resurrection's about. It's about bodies not being where they should be. It's about bodies coming back to life. That is what resurrection is. That the body that was buried in this tomb is no longer in this tomb. And that's made quite explicit by the man, isn't it? You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. Well, you've come to the right tomb, but in fact it's empty. Because he's gone. He's risen. Resurrection is not immortality of the soul. Christians do not believe in the immortality of the soul. That's not a Christian belief or understanding at all. And resurrection is not reincarnation, which again Christians do not believe in. See, immortality soul says that my my person is made up of two different things, at least. One is the body, the other is a soul that's kind of been poured inside it. And when I die, the soul pops back out again. Now that soul bit, that's eternal, always has been, always will be. The body bit, that is temporal. And so when I'm born, I'm poured into a, little, into a little body. And as I grow up, the body grows up, but the soul's always been there. And when I die, the soul pops back out again. You can tie that in then with a reincarnation theory by popping the soul back into another body, which then goes on again. Now, of course, it doesn't even have to be a human body, does it? You can come back as a pig, or as, well, some people that's not very much different, I suppose, but you can come back as all kinds of different things as you want to, as your soul may please. Now, immortality of the soul has all kinds of philosophical implications, which are quite foreign to the New Testament. But most people will say and think that the immortality of the soul is the same as the resurrection of the body. But it's not. We're not saying that Jesus died and was buried and then his soul left the body. That's not what's being said. What's saying is the body has actually come back to life. And it's not come back to life as a different body, as another body, as an ant or an apple or something or other. It has actually come back as Jesus, that one who was crucified, has come back. That is the nature of resurrection. Now the history of resurrection is another thing. Because these documents and these people are, not, are claiming that it's not a myth. It's not a story that they have made up to illustrate that being coming a Christian is something which, which renews you all over. They actually claim to be witnesses of the event. They claim that there is a tomb that was used in Jerusalem, used for the body to be lain, which is now empty. That is the claim of the the New Testament uh, writers and the New Testament people. That they saw the tomb empty. And they claim it to be an event in history. As John the Apostle says, that which we've touched with our hands, that which we've seen with our eyes and heard with our ears, that which we've felt. That is what we're proclaiming to you. As Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you whose power it is coming. That's speaking not of the resurrection but of the transfiguration. But it's the same principle. They're not talking about myths. They're talking about history. They're talking from their viewpoint about facts. Nobody produced the body of Jesus. You See, Christianity would have been the easiest thing in the world to kill. All you had to do was produce the body. And if the tomb had not been empty, you wouldn't even have to produce the body. You'd only have to go up and say, well, go and check the tomb. But it wasn't the, wasn't the enemies of Christianity who, said, who could do that. It was Christians themselves. They said, go and check the tomb. And the Jewish uh, antagonists to Christianity in the next two centuries never contended with the fact that the tomb was, was, uh, had a body in it. I always agreed the tomb was empty. The question is, how did it come to be empty? The body could have been stolen. Or it could have come back from the dead. But you've got the problems of who stole the body. Now you're approaching the question historically. And it seems to me a valuable exercise to go through. As to work out the alternatives that are available to you. As to why if the Jews stole the body they didn't produce it. As to why if the disciples stole the body they were willing to die for it. As to why the Romans would bother stealing the body. Are very good questions that need to be aroused how can it be that a group of people insignificant unknown people following an insignificant and unknown man who was one of several different messiahs of the first century palestine how that group of discouraged little band of men who saw their great leader executed on his first major visit to jerusalem how they 30 years later could be so large in number and so well-known, only 30 years later, remember, in the ancient world without our speed, only 30 years later could be so well-known in the centre of Rome, known even to the emperor of Rome, that he could blame them for the burning of the city and find popular support because they were so commonly disliked. How can it be that a group can found that quickly? Where did they come from? if at the very heart and base and root of all that they were doing was a lie that they had perpetuated, that they had actually stolen the body, why did they do it? Why did they seek to turn the world upside down and in the process themselves get knocked about, killed and thrown to the lions? What is the motivation of that? It actually doesn't make sense, the great theory of the disciples stealing the body. To say nothing of the practical difficulties involved with the Roman guard and the like. The history of the resurrection needs to be investigated because it claims to stand on history. But before you investigate it, you must clarify in your mind one of the important questions of the a priori acceptance. That is, people often say, whether they know the uh, logical terms or not, they often say, well, Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead because dead men don't rise from the dead. It is an impossibility. No matter what evidence you show me, I won't believe it because it's impossible. Well, of course, If that is the case, you have just denied the whole empirical science, scientific method, haven't you? If you make the conclusion that you will not believe things before looking at the evidence, because they're impossible, well then you won't believe that men have flown in the aeroplane, because there are lots of people who used to say that was impossible. Gone to the moon, lots of people used to say that was impossible. Talk on telephones from one side of the world to the other, lots of people would say that was impossible. A whole range of things people in different generations have said impossible, which in another generation have been done. You do not know what is possible and impossible until it can be shown to be done. That is, you can't make the decision beforehand that he cannot rise from the dead. That is not an exercise in science, but a denial of the whole method of science. But you say, I can't scientifically investigate it because I can't do the experiment again. And repeatable experimentation is a very, very important part of the scientific methodology. Well, it may be in some scientific areas, it's not in others. You see, you can't test the theory of evolution that way either. You can't repeat the experiment, unless, of course, you're God, I suppose you could then. But for the rest of us, mere mortals, the repetition of that uh, whole process is not something that is open to us. And yet, if you say that you don't believe in the theory of evolution, you consider to be a religious nutcase, aren't you? Or something like that. Now, I'm not entering into the question of whether or not I do or do not believe in the theory of evolution. I'm just pointing out that not all scientific method requires repeatable experimentation. That's not the case at all. You can't rule it out by definition without ruling out your brain by the same definition. What you must do is examine it. Now, how can you examine it? Well, the same way you examine any event that is a unique event in history. How do you examine whether or not Captain Cook actually landed in Australia? You look at the documents. You check out the historical evidences for such a thing. You have a look at his maps and see if they really do represent what the coastline of Australia is. You try and find out if anyone had done such maps before and so on. It's historical examination that is required. But it's not a brainless examination. And it's one that does in the end call upon you to make a judgement, an assessment. And either Jesus did rise from the dead, the tomb was empty in the way in which this young man said because he had risen, or he didn't. And if he didn't, I'd like you to come and tell me where he is. Who took him where he is? What happened? Because it seems to me the alternative hypothesis to resurrection is yet to be able to be substantiated with anything of the evidence that you have for the resurrection. It stands on history. Now the statement that is made is necessary very important, because the young man is saying two things, one, that the tomb is not being robbed, and two, that it's the right tomb, very important they find out it's the right tomb, isn't it? But both those things are being said, and they're said to the women there that this is the case, that he has risen, the one who was crucified, clear identification then with Jesus, the one of Nazareth, he is risen, the one that you late here is not here, but is alive and to be seen, and will be seen going to Galilee. Please take note of the fact that he actually says it to women, and that it's the women who do it. Here is another little tidbit for you in your historical survey. In case you think I'm backtracking on the notes for a moment, I am. Because my eye caught one note that I'd left out. Here is a little piece of historical anecdote that's important. The witness of women in Palestine was considered to be an absolute irrelevance. Women could not stand in court against men. Indeed, only a man's evidence could be believed, and then two witnesses were necessary to even believe a man. But 20 women would make no difference. The Christian claim was that the resurrection morning, two women went and found the tomb empty. That's of no value. There is no reason in the world of recording it to them. Because any person reading it would say, Well, so what they women they're so emotional they went to the wrong tomb. Uh, it was most likely Jesus sitting there, but they were crying so hard they couldn't see through their eyes, through the, through the tears. I mean, you know, it doesn't account for anything. Mere women. And indeed, Christian Christianity was attacked at that point that the evidence of women cannot be relied upon. Now, if that is the case, why do you think they bothered recording it? Why record evidence which is of no value to your case? It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? You just miss full of problems like that. Real problems to people who want to dismiss it because they have a perversity for the truth. They record things that don't even help their case. There's a lovely one at the end of Matthew's Gospel where they actually say that the disciples doubted even though they were face-to-face with the risen Jesus. Useless thing to record. Great embarrassment to think that the 12, they were 11 then, apostles, the great founders and foundation stones of the the Christian movement, actually face-to-face with the risen Lord, (laughs) doubted. Or some of them did, it says. A terribly embarrassing little fact to record, isn't it? Why record a fact like that if you're trying to con people? You never find a salesman at your doorstep telling you little embarrassing details about his product, do you? You don't discover them until the Warranty periods run out. (laughs) That is the first time you can find out those things. But the New Testament writers have this perversity for the details which don't help their case even. It's the women who find Jesus' body gone in the first occasion. And they are told to gather together disciples to Galilee for Jesus will be seen there seen in what sense? they're going to appear to him he's going to appear to them as the end of the world it may be that, you don't know at this stage appear so that they might know that he is risen is what it turns out to be but you don't know it from Mark's gospel but it is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus gives in chapter 14 verse 28 when he picks up the book of Zechariah and says as God has struck the shepherd and scattered the sheep so I'll be struck and you'll be scattered but if you look at the Zechariah passage it also says that a remnant will remain and who will be gathered together and they will be called God's people and Jesus says I will gather together with you again in Galilee to gather together God's people there Peter is specified I presume because he is the man who so blatantly denied Jesus he too can be welcome as part of God's family. And the reaction of the women is fear and astonishment, just as we've seen throughout the whole gospel. I'll rattle out a few numbers now for you. You'll get the overall impact, and some of you will get down the first few of them, and you can check me out. But you find this reaction of fear and astonishment, of dumbfoundedness in 127 to 12. 4.41, 5.15, 5.33, 5.42, 6.2, 6.51, 6.52, 7.37, 9.6, 9.15, 9.32, 10.26, 10.32, 12.17, and I gave up. But as people came face to face with Jesus and saw him for who he was, saw him doing the great deeds that he was doing, they were astonished. He kept on surprising them and they were left in amazement and fear. And rather than racing and telling the Apostles, they ran home in flight and in silence. Subsequently, of course, we read from the other Gospels, they did tell the Apostles. Well, what's the significance of this chapter, chapter 16? It's not spelled out for us in Mark's Gospel, or in Mark, in this, uh, in, in this chapter. And that, of course, is why people want to give you verses 9 to 20 because it all ends there, but the significance of it has been spelt out throughout the gospel if you had eyes to see as the disciples didn't there's the obvious indication of the victory death did not contain him or hold him he conquered death he conquered Satan that God actually accepted his sacrificial death and Satan and sin did not have the victory but Jesus was vindicated by God, that's that takes very little brains to work out. But secondly, you find in the in the resurrection of Jesus the fulfilment of his prophecies, which are listed there in our notes. Are they not? 831, 931, 1034, 14, 28. Where Jesus, in telling his disciples he is to be killed, also tells them that he will rise again. Now that claim of Jesus was not well known outside the disciples' group indeed I wonder if it was known at all outside the disciples group was not understood by the disciples which again tells evidence against their stealing of the body you see Jesus only foretold his death to his disciples he doesn't actually proclaim it to his enemies and his disciples will not believe it if Jesus was an ageing guru you know, in his 80s and all the rest of it and said I'm going to die shortly It would have been very believable. But as a young man whose movement was just kind of getting underway, to actually say that I, the King of Israel, am going to be executed by the Israelites did not make sense, especially as he hadn't been enthroned yet as the King of Israel. That when I come to Jerusalem, I'm not going to capture the city. I'm actually going to be captured by the city. And I'm not going to be crowned but executed did not make sense to them and they keep on rejecting that message. What they don't hear is the last little phrase that he goes on and says, and after I've been ill-treated, etc., three days later I'll rise again. That they do not hear. And why don't they hear it? Well, firstly, because they're confronted with the whole idea of death, which is just unthinkable. They will not believe he's going to die. So the, uh, the question of whether or not he's going to rise from the dead is an irrelevance. But secondly, even if they do accept that he is going to die, they believe the resurrection is a way of talking about the end of the world they are not thinking that he is going to come back himself before the end of the world that would be unthinkable you get it in the interchange between uh, Jesus and Martha at the, de- at the uh, death of her brother Lazarus in John chapter 11 where, let me read it for you, yes, we've just got time to do this, in John chapter 11 Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So That's the kind of thing Jesus said about himself. Your brother will rise again, I will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again at the resurrection in the last day. So the resurrection is a way of talking about the end of the world. When all God's people will rise up again. That's all that can be thought of. So when Jesus talked about himself as dying and rising again, they said, yeah, you're, I mean, I don't believe you're going to die, but if you die, yes, you're a good and godly man, and you'll rise up again on the last day. And if Jesus says, but it's three days later I'm going to rise up, they'll say, oh, well, that means you're saying the end of the world's going to come three days after you execute it. But your execution is so unthinkable, I mean, we're just not thinking of it. I mean, that's just not right. Can't be. It wasn't in their understanding, although it was clearly in the words of Jesus that he would rise. And that three days later. Indeed it was the fulfilment of all the prophecies we're told in Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel. But all through the Old Testament we're told of the resurrection if we had only eyes to see it. Peter quotes for example Psalm 16 as a case where David looks forward to the resurrection of the Messiah. You might like to check that one out yourselves later. But the resurrection was seen in terms of the end of the world. And Jesus talked about coming to his glory, coming to his kingdom, coming as the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days to receive power and glory and authority and to be able to rule over the universe. And that is what is taking place in his resurrection. Turn back to chapter 14, verse 62, and you'll see the point. Here is Jesus before the great high priest, Caiaphas, who says to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see that take place. You will see me fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel chapter uh, 7 verse 13 and uh, Psalm 110 verse 1. You will see the Son of Man in his position of lordship over the universe. Now when do you see the Son of Man coming in the power and glory like that? We tend to think it's the end of the world. Certainly in chapter 13, when Jesus is giving that little apocalyptic section, that is the most common understanding of it. It's the one that I disagreed with, if you remember from our last session. I actually demurred from that and said that I don't think it's talking about that. It's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. For it is there that you see Jesus come to his power and authority and glory. He actually is risen as the Lord of heaven and earth. His resurrection is the end and the beginning of the end, all rolled in together. That when he rises there, he truly is the king of the universe. And seen to be that in terms of Psalm 110 and uh, Daniel chapter 7. Now, all that is in Mark's gospel without him spelling it out. So, I don't think he needs another 19 verses or whatever it is, 12 verses. They're unnecessary. If you've been reading it carefully on the way through, when you see him rise, then the jigsaw puzzle pieces that you've got left over on the side of your table will suddenly fall into place. They're, they're, they've been sitting there for several chapters. You haven't been able to work out what they're about. But now that you've got the whole, the key piece in, there's only four spots left over and they're completely different shaped. And it doesn't take very much work to work out which one of the four goes into which one of the spots. If you're not a jigsaw addict, I'm sorry. You'll have to work out another illustration. So the, the, the meaning of the significance of the death of Jesus comes out in Mark's gospel that here is his victory not only over death but so that he actually now is in the fulfillment of his prophecies the king who has brought in his kingdom he is the ruler of the whole universe that is the claim now the New Testament writers take that further the rest of the New Testament take it further and point out to us several other things about Jesus which I've listed there now you can start to see there's a whole batch of verses and I'm not going to pursue those through, but you might like to look them up. What they say is that our life now is radically different because Jesus rose from the dead then. It has tremendous implications to us. Our pasts are actually forgiven now because Jesus' death was a death for sin. That is, our rebellion against God is dealt with by Jesus. I need no longer lay awake worrying and regretting and ashamed of the things that I have done because through the death of Jesus I have the statement of God that I am right in his sight Romans 4, tick that up for you nicely 1 Corinthians 15 says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead we're still in our sins more than that it says our future is all spelt out for if Jesus is now risen to be the king of the universe the judge of the world who brings about the end of the world then indeed the world comes to an end and the world is going to be judged by the man Jesus Acts 17.31 makes it very clear. 1 Thessalonians 10 tells us that he's actually going to rescue his people when he returns, which is great news. And that in Philippians 2 we're told that everyone will then see him. Not everyone sees him now. I can't look around and say, oh, look, there he is up there, just, the f- just moved to that cloud over there. You won't be able to see him like that. But while only those who see him now are those who believe him because they have looked at the evidence and are persuaded that it's true, in the end, when he returns, everyone will see him, and everyone will acknowledge him to be the king, some under judgment, some under salvation. And so in uh, Philippians three, which is not listed there, verses 20 to 21 our bodies will be resurrected too. Our bodies will be changed from this lowly state therein to be like his body, and we will continue into a life of eternity. And in 1 Peter chapter one, you're told that that has already taken place in yourself spiritually, that those who are Christians are people who have been born again by the resurrection of Jesus that just as he died and rose again so he can bring us to new life and the life of eternity is something we can already share in now but it comes about because he has risen from the dead and so our present life is different 1 Corinthians 15 verses 56 in the like points out that life has a meaning you see if death is the end if all there is to life is death then what's the point of living? What's the point of having money? What's the point of having a job? What on earth is the point of having a university degree? None of them are of any help to you when you're in the coffin. None of them are going to do a thing for you as you go up the flue of the, uh, of the crematorium. None of them are going to help you in the slightest in any way. Even if you're a fertiliser to the rose bushes. A botany degree doesn't help. this fertiliser is irrelevant to the, degree of, uh, degrees you, uh, the, the uh, kind of life you lived now really doesn't matter and so what's the point of life none but when you see that there is life beyond the grave then you can start to find values and meanings in life this side of the grave and for the christian particularly in that colossians 3 passage you'll find the meaning this side of the grave has all got to do with christ because he is the clear sign of resurrection he is the one in whom we are raised to new life He is the touchstone and the Lord, the the, the judge and ruler of the new life, which we can experience not only when we die, but which we experience in the here and now. And that passage encourages us to take all its full advantages in the here and now. So the resurrection is a key, very important key, that we must consider. If If it's untrue, well then this is the greatest hoax of all time that countless thousands, millions have died for. If it's true, then your eternity hangs on it." It's not an issue that can really be treated as lightly and irrelevantly, as many Australians seem to want to take it. We've got a lecture coming in here afterwards, and I'm sorry about that, because when we move to the other lecture theatre, we don't get pushed out immediately. Next week, we'll be in the other theatre and look at the opening chapter of Genesis, from the opening chapter of the Bible, which is some area of considerable controversy. I do hope that you will have the opportunity of reading it beforehand and inviting friends who are troubled by the book of Genesis to come and hear what the message of Genesis is. I do not promise you that I will give you a lecture on the meaning of Darwin and his uh, trip on the Beagle or anything like it. I do promise to try and tell you what Genesis chapter 1 is about. Let's pray, shall we? We thank you Lord and Heavenly Father for your son and his great victory over death and sin and Satan on our behalf. We thank you that our past can be forgiven and that our future is assured. We thank you that he is indeed the king and ruler of the universe and has brought in his kingdom through his death and resurrection in this most extraordinary fashion. And we pray Father that you would help us now to live in the light of his resurrection that our present lives might be so radically changed by him that we might already be sharing in the joy that lies ahead of us of being like Jesus for eternity. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com.
0: Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.